Father, we want to be in your school today. We want to be in your presence. We've learned in these last weeks that prayer is nothing if it's not out of relationship. Our Father in heaven. And now we're asking you to teach us to open the Word so that we can truly learn what it means to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess the best way to look at what we're going to talk about today is that if prayer were a journey, then today is about the guidance system, the navigational tools. It's that phrase, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to take a minute and think about what drives you as a person. What are your primary concerns, your present goals, your passions? What's driving you right now? If you were to create a set of prayer requests out of those things, just for a minute, just imagine what they would be. What kind of things would come to mind? For some of us, it would be our children. For others of us, perhaps the job, another meaningful relationship, significant life change. See, here's the big picture today. What you are committed to is what you pray about. And when Jesus is teaching us what prayer is, he has a very specific list of things that he wants us to be committed to. Life is full of difficult situations. It's hard enough to understand why they're here, let alone how to pray about them. And I think what Jesus has in mind here is to give us a set of location markers to help us line ourselves up so that we're praying effectively according to what God wants for us. F.B. Myers was a very famous evangelist and minister from Great Britain. He was a good friend of Dwight L. Moody, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he tells this story of traveling from Dublin across the Irish Channel into Holyhead Harbor. It was a moonless night, pitch dark. Couldn't even see where they were headed, let alone how they were going to find the harbor. And so he asked the captain, how will you know where the harbor is? It was surrounded by rock cliffs and rocky ledges. The captain said to him, you see those three lights out there? All I need to do is to line those three lights up and then follow them in, and that will get me directly into the harbor. When those three lights become one light, you know we are on our way. I think that's exactly what Jesus has in mind here. He's giving us three markers that we line up. What we're learning is that prayer is about aligning ourselves to God's passions God's purposes, God's priorities. Because if we do that, then all of our circumstances have a whole different perspective, and we have some guidance as to how we're to come to the Heavenly Father in them. So that's what we're looking at today, prayers, commitment, clause. There are three statements. I love how when you look at the Lord's Prayer, it breaks down into these beautiful clusters of terms. We start with your name, your kingdom, and your will. And then we get into the next section that we're going to talk about next week, prayer is reliance. He mentions four things, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. Then we move into the final section, your kingdom, your power, your glory. It's beautifully expressed to us. And so what we see in this section are these three great, if I could, lights And I want to suggest that prayer 
is a perpetual realigning of our lives to God's purposes and the passions he wants us to have. The first thing God wants us to commit to is to your name, that your name would be hallowed. Hallowed means to be set apart, to be made holy. You see, this is an action that we are to be engaged in. It should be our desire as we come to the Father that whatever happens in life, whatever decisions we make, whatever it is he's going to do, it's going to result in his name being set apart through my life as holy. One of my missions in life is to make much of God. To make much of God. Isaiah 26, 8. Lord, walking in your ways, we wait patiently for you. Your name and your renown are the desires of our heart. Our ambition in how we live our lives is your fame. Think about that. We live for God's fame. We want to make much of God. Peter talks about that. Live such good lives before the world that even though they may curse you, they'll glorify your Father. Living for God's fame, living to make much of God. Let me just ask you a question. I think all of us can tell stories where we have gone through very difficult circumstances. Eventually, all of us face hardship. There's no, no life without hardship. I would argue there's no wisdom without hardship. <laughs> Let me ask you, the last time you passed through hardship, what mindset you had when you were going through it? And therefore, when you prayed to God, what did you pray for? I can remember a time in my life when we were betrayed by people that we had invested in for a long time, cared a great deal about them, and found ourselves in a situation where we uh, had been very hurt, very painful. When I, I was making a decision as to how to respond to that situation, I really had two choices. I could function for my honor and fame. Or I could make decisions that resulted in God's honor and fame. And I'm so grateful that very early on when my wife and I were in prayer, that's one of the things that God confirmed is that whatever decision we made, job number one was to make much of God. You see, when you are in those situations and you're really looking to protect yourself, the things you pray about are justice, <laughs> vengeance, dare I say, you look for deliverance, someone to defend your cause. You see, all these things. I admit, at, at different times in my life, I have certainly prayed because my honor, my dignity was high on my list, even though I may not have seen it, or if I did see it, I certainly wouldn't have been willing to admit it. But when you come to a situation like that, and instead you say, no matter what, at the end of this, I want God's fame. I don't want just God's fame not to be damaged. I want it to be even greater, if at all possible, by my actions. How does that change the decisions you made? Even more so, how does that change how you come to your Father in the midst of those circumstances? You understand how getting that as one of our markers, as one of our passions, changes the very nature of our prayers, let alone the outcome that we're seeking. I'm so grateful that God gave us that uh, because now looking back, we have a, a clean conscience and we believe that God was honored at least as much as we can answer for. And so, certainly God, God has uh, 
restored and done wonderful things in our lives as a result. Now, I, I don't share that to suggest that I've got this prayer thing down. I don't. Like the rest of you, I'm growing in it. But what a powerful reminder to realign ourselves to God's purposes. And his first purpose is that you and I live for his fame. Hallowed be your name. I commit to your name, Father. The second phrase, your kingdom come. Our first thought about this is Jesus returning and establishing his kingdom. And, of course, that is a legitimate perspective. But that is not all that Jesus had in mind here. So were we simply to say that this is about looking forward to Jesus coming, then we miss the idea. And we really don't understand what the Bible means by the kingdom of God. We think of it as some future state. You see, the word kingdom in the Bible is the word basileia. And it doesn't mean a geographical region over which someone reigns, which is what we think of, which is why the kingdom in our mind can only happen when Jesus comes and sits on the throne. Basileia means the act of reigning. Jesus, when he began his ministry, went into the synagogues and read Scripture that proclaimed the coming and the inauguration of the kingdom of God and said to the people there, this prophecy has been fulfilled today in your midst. And we see Jesus being consistent with that pronouncement as he goes through his whole ministry. What does he teach on? The kingdom of God. What is the gospel? It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is probably a broader study for us some other day because it has implications on everything that we're to be about, what our mission is, who we are as citizens of that kingdom. The point here is that there is a present reality to the kingdom of God even as there is a promise of his literal return and a physical coming of his kingdom. There is a present reality. Where is the kingdom? The kingdom is wherever Christ reigns. Does Christ reign in your heart? There is the kingdom of God. Does Christ reign in our actions? There is the kingdom of God. So when we pray, your kingdom come, he actually goes on and defines it. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? Well, what happens in his kingdom? He reigns. His will is done. <laughs> We could actually look at this and say, your kingdom come, and by definition that means your will be done right now on earth as it is in heaven. You take authority, accomplish what you want, you reign. So a cry for the kingdom of God is not just a cry for God's return. Because what that creates is sort of this, we're holding on, we're holding on. How many have been listening to Harold Camping? Anybody here? It's scary, isn't it? Harold Camping has actually declared a date in which he says Jesus is coming. And he's told his followers to stop going to the churches because God has abandoned the churches. You see, now that's an extreme version. By the way, anybody know the date? It's soon, isn't it? What is it? May 21st. May 21st. So I don't expect any of you here next week if Harold's right. That's how the Seventh-day Adventists got started. They pronounced a specific date in which Jesus was going to come. Many of the followers put white robes on, sold everything they had, and they actually went on their rooftops or on the top of hills waiting for Christ to return. And when he didn't return, 
the, the woman that had founded this group and had had the vision said, oh, uh, I, I got more revelation. He came, but not here. He came in a different reality. Now we understand more clearly. See how, how messy it can get? What we have is a survivor mentality. I'm just holding on. God doesn't, his intent is not that. His intent is that the kingdom is now, and you and I have a job, and that's to extend the kingdom. What did Christ say to Peter and to the other followers when they declared the core truth of the gospel? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He said, I'm going to build my church, and you, all of you, are going to have the keys to the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is something that God is extending right now through you and I through the work of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. That's that's establishing outposts in men's and women's hearts and minds where Jesus reigns. So when I'm saying your kingdom come, there's some very specific things besides I'm holding on. Here's three of the things that we are saying to God when we say, I'm committed to your kingdom. First, I'm saying, Lord, expand your rule over my life. Your kingdom come right here. The progressive work of God in taking increasingly more ownership of my life, sanctifying me, doing that sanctifying work, finishing the work he began in the new birth. I'm saying, Lord, expand your rule in my life. Where is it today that I still have a little throne set up that you need to knock me off of, where I need to take up my cross and follow you? Second thing, we're saying, Lord, extend your kingdom through me. That's what we're called to do. Make disciples of every nation. We are extending God's reign, God's kingdom. Third, we're saying, Lord, I do expect you to return, (laughs) and soon. We are living with that expectancy, but not as survivalists. We're thriving, expanding his kingdom, preparing for his return. I commit to your name. I live to make you famous. Your name, your renown, that's the passion that I live with. That's the desire of my heart. I live to extend your kingdom in me, through me, and I long for your coming. But in the meantime, I'm going to be busy. Right? And then third, the third marker that helps us align ourselves perpetually to God's purposes and passions and therefore direct our prayer life is that I commit to your will. Now, I think that this is the one that we have learned to embrace the most easily because it's a no-brainer. You don't have to go to the Greek language to understand this. God wants what God wants, and he wants us to want what he wants. No deep explanation about that. We know that Jesus himself, and we're going to go to it in a few minutes, even Jesus had to say, Lord, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So we get this whole idea about God's will. But this is one of those areas where I think we have this Sunday morning reality, and then the rest of the week reality. Were I to ask you, what do you live for? What's your passion? If you picked up your Bible and came to church, and you didn't just pick up your Bible, you picked up your Jesus jargon with you, you might sitting here or sitting in the small group or or sitting among other Christians say, I live for God's will and purposes. That's that's the right answer. Doesn't mean it's reality. It doesn't mean it's real. 
So when I'm saying I'm living for God's will, there are some really important things that have to work their way into our everyday life. I am saying, first of all, Lord, you are God, and I am not. You are God, and I am not. We so much want to come to God in prayer by asserting our will, our wishes on him. And as we're going to learn next week, there is this time to bring our needs to God, but it's not to assert our will on him. Remember C.S. Lewis's quote I mentioned, I think, last week? I don't pray to change God's mind. I pray so that he'll change my mind. I think that's a really important thing. He's God. I'm not. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not trying to persuade you. You're God. You know everything. You know what's best. You know my needs before I ask them. And you reign. You are God and I am not. Second, because of that, Lord, I want what you want. Why don't you say that with me? Lord, I want what you want. How does that feel? In all those things that you have such need and concern about, that you have an expectation of how those situations will turn out that will bring happiness not only to you but to people that you love. Can you really in those circumstances let go and say in those moments, Lord, I really want what you want? And the only way we can do that, I think, is if we're able to say further, Lord, I need you to take my requests. They're the best I can do. I need you to take my requests and do what you know is best. I need you to take my requests because you're God, I'm not. And because what I really want is what you want for me, because I'm trusting you as my Abba. You're not, you're not a judgmental God who's going to pounce and make life miserable just out of principle. <laughs> you're my Abba. And so I need to trust what you want. And so I want what you want for me. And so I'm bringing you my life, my family's lives, our needs, the best I can. But what I really want you to do is to do what you know is best for me. I commit to your will. So hard to do. We really want what we want in the end. And what we really want is to make Christianity a way to get God to do what we want him to do. That's a path to death. It's not a path to life. It's certainly not a path to joy. Now, the hardest place to set ourselves in a position of submission to God's will is in the hard times. We all know that, that wrestling point, those of us that have experienced those difficult moments. And the rest of you that haven't, just wait. You're going to experience it. And you're going to have to really wrestle with, are you willing to come to a God who loves you, who is pater, who is father, who is Abba, Papa, who's in a loving relationship with you and really want what he wants in that circumstance. Let me ask you a question. When you and I come into difficult situations and then we think to pray about it, what is our knee-jerk reaction to difficult circumstances when we pray to God? Change, help, deliverance. 
fix. Right? Get me out of this. And most of us never stop to think twice that that's what God wants too. Wouldn't God want us to be relieved from these hardships? And so why do we have so many of us such bitterness against God? Because he didn't do that, did he? He made us sit in the hard time. He made us experience the full weight of the loss and the betrayal and the pain. And when we cried for deliverance, he seemed silent because what we were looking for was yes. And what he was was the silent strength in the midst of it, working out his good in that circumstance. But we didn't see it. We weren't looking for it. Never occurred to us that God would want anything but to keep us from harm. It reminds me of a moment even in Jesus' life in Luke 22 when he faced the cross. This is interesting because the first and true son of the father had that same struggle that we have. Amazing, isn't it? The God-man, Jesus who was fully God, but yet fully man in his humanness, looking at what was ahead of him, cried out in Luke 22, Father, if you are willing, if you're willing, can you take this cup from me? That's not symbolic. He sweat drops of blood. This was Jesus as a man before the Father, knowing what was in front of him, having second thoughts. Father, is there any way you can remove this from me? I'm not going to try to explain that theologically. I'm just going to tell you it's there. But then this is the true mark of sonship. He goes on and says, but yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, turn with me quickly to Hebrews chapter 12, because I think we're supposed to see this very image in our minds as we read what the writer of Hebrews has for us. Hebrews chapter 12. Chapter 11 is what we call the Hall of Fame. All these great people who have come before us, who have by faith faced hardship and victory, joy and sorrow, and have run their race with endurance. And now the writer of Hebrews turns to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And how do we do that? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate navigational point in our lives. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What a phenomenal description. So let's put against that this moment before the cross where Jesus in a moment of humanness while never relinquishing who he was as divine, confessed uncertainty. Lord, can you free me from this? But yet, he knew the Father's will was ultimately what he wanted. And it enabled him 
to not only endure the cross, but to scorn the shame of it. Love that. (laughs) The cross was the most humiliating way to die. Jesus said, that's nothing. I scorn that humility. I scorn that shame. And he endured the cross. How could he? He knew it was the Father's will, and he knew at the end of the path that the Father's will would take him down. There would be joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You do the math. (laughs) God's will, no matter how dark it appears in the moment, is the true path to joy. Lord, your will be done. You are God, I am not. And so I want what you want. I want you to take my requests and do what you know is best. Because no matter how dark even this moment is, for the joy in front of me, I'll endure it. I'll submit to your will. Joel and the band did a great version of I have decided to follow Jesus. Wasn't Wasn't that fun? Upbeat, rhythmic. You wouldn't have known looking at you. Did I mention that? (laughs) But you know, there was a period in my life where I just, I walked away from that song. I I have memories of the guilt and the anguish of singing that song. It was all about taking up your cross, and that seemed like such a sad thing to do. It felt so difficult. I have decided to follow Jesus. That sounds okay until you get to the other stuff. (laughs) The cross before me. The world (laughs) behind me. Uh, And what I pictured was the world was all the joy, all the pleasure. It was just the cross before me. As a kid, that was a miserable thought. And it gets worse. (laughs) Don't, Don't go with me. Still, I will follow. It's lonely and it's painful. That's following Jesus. The world back there, everybody else back there, me here. No turning back. (laughs) No turning back. Depressing thought. Why? Because I just didn't understand that to die is to live. To pursue the path of God's will is to pursue joy. The hardship none of us can escape. And yes, it's even part of God's will. But think about it. It's part of Abba's will. And he's in it with us. And he told us to keep our eyes on him because he navigated those waters well. And because he endured the cross. He not only experienced the joy, but that joy is your and my salvation. Prayer has to be our aligning ourselves to God's purposes. It has to be the thing that allows us to gain fresh perspective on the burdens and the needs and the requests. It has to be about God tuning our hearts to what he's doing for it to be the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, Pater, in heaven, let us live for your fame. Hallowed be your name. Let us extend your kingdom in our lives and through us into others. Your kingdom come. And Father, we want what you want for us. Your will be done. Amen.